You're listening to the Northside Christian Church Podcast. Find out more about Northside by visiting us online at northsideweb.org. Good morning. Christmas is all about Christ. How many of you are glad you're saved today? Okay, half of you. How many of you really are glad that you're saved today? There you go. I'm so glad. There's a few, maybe not. Uh, Before we get in the message, we're going to start talking about Christmas today. But before we get in the message, three things. Number one, um, two weeks ago, we took up a love offering uh, for the Medina campus. We gave birth as a church to a new campus that is in Medina. We really kind of had to wait a whole week because to count that, because Medina's offerings taken today, by the time they get here, get it in the safe, get all that, it's not really counted till the following week. And so we had to add that this last Sunday. So the total offering for the special offering for Medina was a little over $60,000. So that really was incredible. Um, Our general budget was a little bit down, so but total that morning was like 92. So it was really, really close. So so uh, we thank you. What a great start for a new church. Uh, It uh, I told Jeff uh, when we started, it's like I want that thing to be self-sufficient in two years, you know, so that so it can help us. But the neat thing about Medina is of all the other missionary work and evangelistic work that we've done, you know, you you pour money into that and, and you're working in that area. But this one has, because it's Northside, has the opportunity to multiply everything that we have done here. We'll probably talk more about that first uh, Sunday. So thank you for your intentional generosity. Here's number two. Um, Last week, last week, Eric talked uh, about and introduced uh, the ping pong balls. All right, if you had ping pong balls. uh, The ping pong balls were, uh, we want you to witness your faith to somebody invite them to church, share your testimony. When you do that to that person, write their name on that ping pong ball and put it in the uh, fish tank out there. And uh, there's really a reason that we want to use ping pong balls. Uh, Even with ping pong balls, it's going to take like 4,000 ping pong balls to fill up that fish tank, okay? But the real reason is um, we were afraid that if we would give you marbles, that too many of you would be losing your marbles, okay? (laughs) It happened actually last Sunday, several, I'm sure it was children, dropped their ping pong balls and they, the slope floor, it all, they all rolled down here to the front. Um, but uh, also I was glad that, you know, had Eric introduce that in case you wanted to throw ping pong balls at him and be thrown on him, and him instead of me. Um, but we want you to know that it's more than just about buildings and programs. It is about sharing your faith. It is about winning people to Jesus Christ. It's about them going to heaven. And, and wouldn't it be so neat, that day that you go to heaven, that, that Jesus comes up to you and says, hey, there's, a, there, there's somebody here from Medina that's here in heaven because of something you did. I want you to meet them. How cool would that be for you to meet people that maybe you didn't even know that, that live in Medina, that would never come all the way down to Wadsworth, but they're in heaven because we started a church there. So already really, really incredible. So take your ping pong balls, witness, and then uh, write their name on it and put it in that. And we'll do that till Easter, and we want to see that thing filled up. So go and tell. Third thing that you see now, the church is decorated for Christmas. Everybody said how nice it really, really looked. I think it really, really looks nice because I didn't have anything to do with it this year. I didn't help, and so that's probably probably a good thing. But we want to thank especially Rich and Renee Davies and, and the Hugus family and the... the um, 
Pruitt family, a lot of them did it, but, but then there were other volunteers yesterday, and so, so we really, really appreciate that. It looks real good. So Christmas time, you know, in December, I start thinking about Christmas and, and uh, pr- trying to preach Christmas messages, and a lot of times we talk about significant people in the Christmas story. This year, I want to talk about significant places like Bethlehem, Nazareth. Uh, we're going to talk about Jerusalem today, all right? So we're going to look at specific uh, significant places that were in the scriptures around the Christmas time. So we're going to talk about Jerusalem today. Let me see a show of hands. How many of you have ever been to Jerusalem or to Israel? Show your hands. Okay, just a few of you. Uh, I hope that if you have it in your heart someday to visit Jerusalem, that you will get to do that. I've had the privilege of, of leading three trips to Israel. I'll be, Lord willing, I'll lead another one this coming June. Uh, incredible, amazing, awesome experiences. The Bible just really, really comes alive when you see Jerusalem and you see so many things. For instance, one of the things that you'll see is when you go there, there's rocks everywhere laying around the ground, everywhere. And it comes to mind, the lady that was caught in adultery and how people just picked up a rock and wanted to stone her to death. And it's just, it's just something that just comes to life. That first time that I ever witnessed Jerusalem, we're coming over the hill in a Greyhound bus and we see this site here, the city of Jerusalem. Uh, one of the uh, reasons I chose this picture is on the, the far right, is what has been called the Wailing Wall. And in the Wailing Wall, I don't know if you know this or not, but, but uh, the people really from all over the world will travel to the Wailing Wall and they, they will write out their prayers. And they take their prayers and they will fold them up and they will stick them in the little crevices in between the, the rocks there and, and leave those there. It's very, very emotional, very significant. Uh, everybody that goes into there has to wear their little hats uh, on their head as a sign of reverence. Um, but, but that wall, um, to me, th- there's so many memories that I have of, of some of my trips in, in Jerusalem. Uh, one of the memories I have of that wall is one year, it was 2000, the trip was 2011. One of the men that wanted to go on that trip was a man by the name of Todd Hoosier. He was 48 years old. Just his life's dream was to go to Jerusalem. So he signed up, he paid, and he was getting ready to go. And unexpectedly, just before we left, he died and uh, didn't get to go. And so as I I talked with their family, what they did is they gave me his senior key. They gave me a picture and his obituary in uh, a little plastic. And I took that with me all the way to Jerusalem, to the Wailing Wall. And I put that in there for Todd and for his family. And that's a memory that I'll never, ever, ever forget. Um, another memory that, that I have, uh, you know, even though Todd didn't get to see the, the old Jerusalem, he got to see new Jerusalem, and that's just so much better. Another memory I have is uh, uh, the first time that Marianne Weida went with us, uh, her and her sister. We had our group, I think it was 2014. Um, uh, we gathered on the hillside overlooking the Sea of Galilee, probably very close to where Jesus uh, preached the Beatitudes, and we gathered in a circle prayer, and we prayed for Corey Weida. Many of you heard Corey's testimony just a few weeks ago 
Uh, but what an awesome experience. Just goosebumps. Um, and, and so there's so many memories like that. I remember on a Sunday, uh, I was on the Sea of Galilee. We were coming across on the Sea of Galilee, and I preached the seaside sermons that Jesus preached in Matthew 13. So, so many, many memories. But if you go there now, the temple's not there. In fact, uh, I want you to look at this picture here. Um, oh, oh, I'm sorry. I think I'm ahead of myself. Just a second. I'm going to grab my notes. Just a second. Um, by the way, the uh, city of Jerusalem has about a million people in it. Uh, that uh, is twice the size of Cleveland. Uh, not that way when Jesus was born. It was much, much smaller then. But Jesus had a real burden for the people in Jerusalem. Uh, just at one time he even wept over the city. Look at Matthew chapter 23. Jerusalem, how often I would have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you weren't willing. So Jerusalem was a city that Jesus loved. Um, and so we're going to look at Jerusalem. But in Jerusalem, there are several kings in the history of Jerusalem. One is King David. Uh, king, uh, one is King Herod. Uh, king Herod we're going to talk a little bit about today. Ruthless, paranoid king. Uh, but long before Herod the, king, Herod the Great uh, there was another king named King David. And in King David, he was actually the one that established the city of Jerusalem around 1000 BC. And it was his son, King Solomon, who actually built the temple. But it was King David that was the driving force behind building that temple. And it stood till about 556 BC when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple. It was rebuilt and then destroyed again in AD 70. And the um, uh, the, the Romans dismantled it after an insurrection by the Jewish people because they want to let them know that they were in control. Uh, but when you look at Jerusalem now, let's, here's another picture of, of the city. As you look at Jerusalem now, city of almost a million people, what stands out to you? It is the Dome of the Rock, what that's called, a Muslim mosque. And you know what's interesting about that Muslim mosque? They built that over the site of the temple. Do you know why they did that? Because they wanted to know that they, they wanted the Jewish people to know that the Muslims were dominant and they were in control of the Jewish people. They built it right over the temple. Now, David specifically chose to build the temple because if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 22, that is the site that God called Abraham to make a, a sacrifice of his son Isaac. So he went up on this mount, Mount Moriah, and he was ready to, to slaughter his son, and God caused him to stop, to, to stop that. And, and it was there that David so wanted to honor that spot and surrendered to the King of kings and Lord of lords that that is where the temple was, was built because God made a promise at that moment that he would uh, bless the Jewish nation and their descendants would be as many as the sands of the sea and the stars in the sky. Now, there's been no shortage of kings when you talk about Jerusalem. And if you go there today, you'll see that the temple is gone, but still the Jewish people are, are allowed to worship the one true God even without a temple. Um, and uh, let's go back all the way back to the birth of Christ, Matthew chapter 2, and to see about some of the promises that are there. Uh, Jerusalem was a very unique city. It has an incredible history. It has a lot of political power struggles that are going on. Uh, it's talked about all over the world. In fact, Jerusalem is the home of three major religions, Jewish religion, Christianity, and the Muslims. And so that's one of the reasons why every news, every news agency has, has people in Jerusalem all the time, news coming out of the Middle East because it affects so many people worldwide. 
Uh, but uh, there, in that first Christmas in Jerusalem, there are three basic kinds of people that I want to talk about this morning. Here's number one. Many were threatened by Jesus. And of course, we zero in on, on King Herod. For starters, that's the most, he's the most threatened, Israel's king. Herod the Great, which was the name that he humbly called himself, um, he, uh, he ruled the province for over 40 years. Uh, he was paranoid and frightened. And by the way, uh, those were those were his good traits. Um, he, um, um, he was also a butcher of people, both young and old alike. Look what happens in Matthew chapter 2. Let's start in verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi came from the east to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and we have come to worship him. Now, these two verses really just kind of stir up a hornet's nest of what's going on. You see the problem in Herod's mind? Herod is the king, and all of a sudden this new king is born, and he thinks that he's threatened that he's going to lose his power, he's going to lose his influence, he's going to lose his kingdom. Now, never mind the fact that Herod is about 70 years old, and here's this little baby that's going to take over the kingship, but, but he's threatened, and this news of the Magi come uh, intensifies that. So in verse 3, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. Now why, uh, you can understand it, maybe he's threatened by his losing his kingdom, but it says all Jerusalem with him was, was terrified, was threatened. Why do you suppose everybody was threatened? Well, let me answer that with a current modern theological statement. If mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, okay? And in that case, if King Herod wasn't happy, nobody was happy because of the way he lived. Now, let me explain that just a little bit further. Um, when Herod first took his leadership, you know what his first act of, of leadership was? He executed the Sanhedrin. That were 70 of the religious leaders in Jerusalem because he wanted to assert his power that he was the one that was in control. Later, he put to death his brother-in-law. He put to death his mother-in-law. He had his wife killed. He even killed three of his own children that they might not want to undermine his position. Caesar Augustus once sarcastically said it would be safer to be Herod's pig than one of his sons. It's no wonder that all of Jerusalem was disturbed with him. He is the perfect example of power gone bad. He abused power for his own personal gain. You know, the truth is some people have positions of leadership, some people have positions of power, and, and they, uh, they abuse that power and they do that for their own personal gain. And I think that's really what you're seeing going on in Washington on both sides, really. Uh, so he's, he's paranoid about his throne because he sees Jesus as a threat. Jump down to verses 7 and 8. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child, and as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Now, his immediate response was he's trying to, get this word, manipulate the wise men into telling him where the, the child was because, remember, he's threatened by this new king, and he wants to murder this king, so he's not going to take over his, his kingdom. But God warns the Magi not to return to King Herod because he had not so good motives. And um, so Herod, he's going to try to handle this conflict in the, the uh, most efficient way that he knows. If he can't zero in and kill this one baby, 
You just kill all the babies, okay, and uh, make sure that he gets them. And it just kind of blows your mind. How, how can somebody be so mean and cruel and, and such a heinous act that's recorded, probably the most heinous act that's recorded anywhere in the Scriptures? Look at verse 16. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Jerusalem and its vicinity who were two years old and younger in accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi. So stop right there. Um, uh, they went a different route home, and so it infuriated Herod. It's like, okay, we're going to wipe out everyone. And so then he gives this quote in, in verse 18. A voice is heard in Ramah, which is referring to Jerusalem and that surrounding area, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, the Israelites, the Jewish people, and refused to be comforted because they were no more. Um, that's a quote out of the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31. But what a, what a senseless tragedy. Now, can you imagine the emotional hurt and pain and, and the silent screams that people must be having to watch their children die? Um, I remember being in Jerusalem in the Holocaust Museum when Hitler had killed thousands and thousands of people. And uh, there's piles of children's shoes that are just so, uh, it, it's just such a poignant, just such a, heart-rending thing to see that. Now, can you imagine that? In fact, if you're here, if you have a child or you have a grandchild that's two years old or younger, just raise your hand. Okay, see how many people right here would be affected by Herod's order? Can you imagine the pain of, of watching your child be two years and older executed by the government? That's what's going on here. Um, but he didn't get baby Jesus because Mary and Joseph were warned in a dream, so they fled the country and they went to Egypt, uh, which gives us a very valuable lesson. Here's the lesson. A human plot cannot stop a divine plan. All right? So, so we think that we're going to control our life and head it in the right direction, especially if we're meaning it for evil. And, and it's like, you're not going to stop God's plan. God's will is sovereign. So the Christmas story is so much more than just that peaceful little nativity scene that we happen to think of. It is a raving ruler. It's a fugitive family. It's a myriad of tombstones where the names of babies and toddlers are written on those tombstones. Um, by the way, the, the reason why the Romans helped Herod get into place was because he was ruthless and he would get what he wanted and he would carry out Rome's orders. Um, Herod was so ruthless that in his impending death, he ordered that on the day that he died, he arrested all the Jewish leaders of the city, and on the day that he died, all those religious leaders were to be executed because he knew that people wouldn't be crying for him, but he wanted to be somebody weeping in Jerusalem on the day that he died. Um, terrible, troubling illustration of, of power on self-absorption on steroids. Um, while he is dead, that spirit kind of lives on because it typifies many people in our world today. Maybe not so much in, in the violence that, that we've just described. Uh, a lot of people, they don't mind taking off work a few days to celebrate the birth of, of Christ, the Christmas. Um, they'll embrace Jesus when they get into trouble and ask him to deliver them. Um, they will ex maybe uh, accept him as a spiritual benefactor if their life is going to be just a little bit better, especially here in the, the Bible Belt area. Um, a lot of people are willing to add Jesus to their life if they think that life's going to be better for them and even call themselves Christian. But, but uh, when the reality begins to set in, 
that no, to be a Christian means that you surrender your life to Jesus Christ. He is the king. He is the one that calls the shots. Then all of a sudden, that begins to change for a lot of people because they don't want somebody else telling them what to do. They want to be the Lord of their own life. Uh, and so typically, even though we like all some of the surrounding fluff of Christmas, uh, there's a lot of people that, that they don't want to bow to a king. They want their own way. And so the controversy of the nativity is not about whether it's going to be put on government uh, sites like courthouse buildings. It's about, is Jesus Christ really going to be the king in and of our life? You just think about, it. do you really want a king? Um, if we're honest, I think a lot of people are looking more for uh, maybe a savior, maybe a mascot, maybe a good luck charm, maybe a warm blanket, you know, something that, that kind of pacifies them. But I'm not so sure that many of them are really looking for a king because we want to be the king of our own throne. It's not just hair that was threatened. I think a lot of us are threatened too. Listen to it this way. We don't want people to tell us what's right and wrong. I want to date who I want to date. I'll marry who I want to marry. We'll raise our kids the way we want to raise our kids. We'll go to church when it's convenient to go to church. Um, I will manage my resources the way I want to manage my resources. Nobody else is going to determine my morality for me. I will sit on the throne of my own life, and the day I die, you can sing that song, I did it my way. That's kind of how we are, and this is our culture, and that affects us because we don't really want a king in our life. Uh, so don't make the same mistake. There's a lot of people, uh, we've got to be willing to, to give of ourselves and, and let Jesus Christ really be the king of our lives. So is it any wonder why all those people in Jerusalem were really disturbed uh, and threatened by this king Jesus being born? Here's the second group of people. Some were complacent about Jesus. Now this is really kind of interesting, blows your mind. The, the Jewish leaders of that time just kind of seemed complacent, like they didn't really care. Uh, you would think that knowing their background, that they would be obsessed with searching for the Christ child, but that doesn't seem to be the case. Let's look back at Matthew chapter 2, look at verses 4 to 6. When he, that is Herod, had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, so here's the religious leaders, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Now, let me ask you, why didn't the scribes and Pharisees, why didn't the religious leaders, why didn't they make the trip themselves? Uh, they knew all the right verses. They were the ones that, that should have been looking for a Messiah. They were the ones that should have been able to put the puzzle pieces together and say, wait a minute here. Man, this is the one we've been looking for for a long time. Let's go look and check it out for, our own, for ourselves to see. Uh, you know? And so you know what that means to us? That means it is possible for you to be an expert in the Bible and still miss Christ. Still miss who Christ is. In other words, we can, uh, we can be oblivious to the obvious. And I think that's what's happening with the religious people there. Um, they knew, you, you, they had to know what was going on. The angels' announcements, all the shepherds go out to worship Christ. Um, they, they already knew Herod had called them in. They, they knew about the wise men. The wise men traveled hundreds of miles from another country. But to our knowledge, there's not a, another single soul that actually made their way to go see the newborn king. Um, and the Jewish scholars say that really it's only like five or six miles from Bethlehem to Jerusalem. So surely with all these reports going around, you'd think they'd want to see it with their own eyes. But that just doesn't seem to be the case here. So 
if anyone should have been excited, it should have been them. But somehow, somewhere along the line, they, they missed it. Now, you know what we think? We think, well, if we were one of the religious people back then, we would have dropped everything we were doing. And we wouldn't want to go check it out ourselves. We'd want to go worship the king. But would we really, uh, really? Um, let's put it this way. There are some of us, maybe some of you, that are on the verge of making a decision to make Jesus Christ the king of your life. And maybe for a long time. But you won't walk 50 steps down to the front of the church to make that decision. So we'd like to say, well, yeah, I would do that back then, but, but we don't do that now. And you know what it means? That means complacency has taken the place of, of commitment in our country. And that's a very dangerous thing for people that follow Christ. But, but um, so many were threatened by Jesus. Some people were complacent by Jesus. But probably one of the best subplots in the whole Christmas story is about a man by the name of Simeon and a prophetess by the name of Anna. And they show us the third group of people. A few people embraced Jesus. All right, look at verse 25 of Luke chapter 2. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem, where we're talking about Jerusalem, the city, called Simeon who was righteous and devout, he was waiting for the constellation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. So picture this. He's an old man by now. Day in and day out, he is in the temple serving, and he's looking for the Messiah. Now, he's not a priest, but he's there serving and working and helping every day. Uh, he is, revere, he is uh, revered for his righteous acts by the people. So uh, let's illustrate it this way. He would be like one of our elders. He's not on staff. But because of his, um, uh, let's say, his righteousness and being devout, he'd be chosen as a leader and looked at that. So he's in the temple every day, and, and, and people recognize him as a leader because of his character and his spirit. But despite his own goodness, he also recognizes that he needs something more. He needs God in his life, and he, so he's looking for the Messiah here. Um, so look at verse 26 of Luke chapter 2. It had been revealed to him, Simeon, by the Holy Spirit, that... He would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Now, let's be honest. That had to be kind of a, a strange scene. Here, here, this couple, Mary and Joseph, bring Jesus in as the custom was to the temple. And here's this old man. And this old man takes up Jesus and lifts him up and starts dancing around. So, oh, I've seen your salvation. I'm ready to die, God. So just, you know, with this birth, let me die. Let me die. Now, he's like, man, that just seems kind of strange, doesn't it? Um, you know, if we were there and we were kind of seeing all that going on, it's like, okay, this old guy is taking his baby. And okay, now he's ready to die. You know what we would have thought? This guy's ready for the funny farm. This man, the loony bird, loony bin. Um, but don't be fooled. That's just another confirmation that Jesus Christ was God's son and God was in this. Um, and he's saying, now call your servant home. I've seen your salvation. By the way, you know what salvation, um, uh, you know what that word means? It means Jesus. He's the one who saves. That's what Jesus means. Um, so he, it's connected Jesus' birth with a peaceful death here. And... and and so we can die in peace when we have come to know Jesus Christ. So the birth of Jesus Christ, what disturbed some, actually delighted other people because of that. 
And so we can talk about the response of a lot of different people that happen at this first Christmas time. Um, but uh, let me tell you bottom, bottom line truth. Until you've accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and your Savior, you don't have a chance of going to heaven. Um, he's got to be your king. And can I remind you what a king means? It means you're his servant. That means you do what he says. That means you bow and sur surrender to him. Uh, and you don't question. You don't, you don't move up any higher. You are a servant. He is the king. He calls the shots. Uh, it is his will. It is his timetable. And that's what it really means to be a Christian. And so when we went to Jerusalem, every time we visited some of the same spots, here's one of the places that we visited. It is a place called Golgotha. And it's on this hill that some people think that this is the hill that Jesus was crucified. Because if you look at it, uh, you can see two eyes, maybe in a nose. In fact, let's zoom in on it and take a closer look. It kind of looks like maybe a skull. And so Golgotha was called the place of the skull. So they think that maybe that's where Jesus might have been crucified. And so every time that we have visited that, very, very kind of a moving thing and they'll talk, we'll talk about the scriptures and what what happened there in that place and after we observe that then we go over to a place where they have benches and we sit down and we have uh, the Lord's Supper where we remember the price that Jesus paid he died for our sins so that that we might be forgiven of everything that we have done and then after we've had that very solemn moment of taking the Lord's Supper then we walk just a little ways over to what has been called the garden tomb and so, so we go to the garden tomb, and the neat thing about that garden tomb, by the way, it dates all the way back to the first century. Um, they, uh, that may have been the place that, that Jesus buried. They, they don't know. They don't exactly know. You know why they don't know? Because the body's gone. It's empty. So it could be the one, but they don't know. It's, it's really what it represents. Um, but it may not, probably not the exact place where Jesus was laid to rest, but that didn't really matter. It's, what it, it's really what it represents. But let me tell you, folks, um, this... This last year, specifically, I've done a lot of funerals, a lot of funerals. And uh, in fact, I've got another funeral this week. This lady is uh, 87 years old. And, and it, it's, it's one thing to do a funeral for an older person, especially when you know that they're a Christian and they're going to heaven. But, but this year, I've had a lot of funerals of people in their 40s and in their 50s. I've had a few in their 20s, uh, early 30s. Uh, I've even done some children's funerals. And, and tell me, let me tell you, some of those are so hard. There's some moments in my life that are just etched in my memory uh, with lots of different things. Funerals, for instance. I can remember holding the hand of two elderly ladies and praying with them when they breathed their last. I can remember, I can remember going, to the going to the hospital at 2 a.m. because a lady was five months pregnant and her child died in her womb and, and she gave birth. And so we went to that funeral home and we, or that hospital and we had a little funeral service right there in the hospital at 2 a.m. And I just remember how small that tiny little baby was. Um, I have helped to bury grandparents and moms and dads and children. It's just such a difficult thing. Um, I, remember, I remember a dad that went to the back of the funeral coach and he picked up a little casket, a little white casket about that big because his little baby was in that casket and he carried it over and he laid it on the grave. And some of those memories will be forever etched in my mind. Do you know, we do not grieve as those who do not have hope. 
even though we grieve because we have such a loss, we have, we have hope in Jesus Christ. You know why we have a hope? Because that tomb is empty. Uh, we, he is risen. And because of that, we have hope in, in everlasting life forever and ever in heaven. And you know, someday, someday, I would hope that uh, we would get to experience the old Jerusalem if we want. And I know for me, as long as I have a group of people that wants to go, I will lead them on that because I feel like we have an opportunity to help people accomplish some of their lifelong dreams. But if you never have the chance to experience old Jerusalem, I certainly hope you get experience new Jerusalem. Look at what the Bible says about New Jerusalem, verse chapter 21 of the book of Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. But I want you to make no mistake about it. Those verses only apply to those people who have made Jesus Christ the king of their lives, who is the king of kings and the Lord of life, that you have surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. Uh, and when you do that, you will find more joy and more fulfillment in your life than you can ever, ever imagine. Bottom line is this. When we draw our last breath, the only thing that will matter is that our name is written in the Lamb's book of life. That's the only thing that's going to matter. And so I, I want to encourage you, if you have never given your heart and life to Jesus Christ, to do that. Do that today. Call me this week. Let's talk about it, pray about it. And we can lead you through the foot of the cross because that is where we have our salvation in Jesus Christ. You know, there are some people like Herod who abhorred him. There are others like the religious leaders who ignored him. But then there were some that adored him. I pray that you and I will always adore him as our king and as our Lord. Let's pray.